1: When Callaway introduced the Apex irons, they created the player's distance iron category. Now they're redefining it with the Apex 21, the first forged irons designed with artificial intelligence. Apex's classic forged craftsmanship is paired with futuristic AI for a combination of tour feel, incredible distance, and shot-making control. In 21, there's an Apex for everyone, with the Apex, the Apex Pro, and the new forgiving Apex DCB. Nothing delivers everything like Apex. Find your Apex at CallawayGolf.ca. The travel industry has been irreversibly transformed by the pandemic in ways that are already apparent and others that have yet to materialize. I'm Gabe Friedman, and this week on Down to Business, my guest was Brian Chesky, co-founder and CEO of Airbnb. One weekend in 2007, Chesky and his roommate Joe blew up a few air mattresses and opened their San Francisco apartment to guests seeking lodging. They called it Airbnb. And just before the pandemic started, Airbnb was on the verge of an initial public offering on the New York Stock Exchange. Chesky talked about the ups and downs of his experience during the past 18 months managing a travel company, living alone, eventually taking Airbnb public, and also the company's impact on cities, housing, and much more. I hope you enjoy the show. As always, it was edited for clarity and brevity. Thank you so much for joining me today on Down to Business. Well, thank you for having me today. There's so much to talk about with what's happened to travel over the last 18 months or so, and I wanna start somewhere maybe a little easier. Can you tell me where you've been working from since the pandemic started?
0: Yeah, I've been um, for the last 18 months with some exceptions for traveling, I've been working out of my home office on the on the top floor of my house in San Francisco, California Mission District. So yeah, I've been in this air chair staring in front of an IMAC and sweatpants for about eighteen months, sixteen hours a day.
1: H- has it been relatively seamless though to make that transition? I assume normally you would have been in an office somewhere.
0: Yeah. It's a kind of like double edged sword, maybe like on the one hand, I feel like this has been probably the most productive 18 months of my life. I think it's the most productive 18 months of the company's life. And I actually think a lot about this new world I like, you know, I just think that like Zoom allows a level playing field and you can just have so much more faster interaction and I don't actually mind it. So I feel like much more productive. Now I will say though, I've also probably until the summer when I started traveling, this was probably also the loneliest period of my life. And I don't think I'm alone to say, uh, I live alone, so that probably doesn't help. But I don't think I'm alone to say that this is probably one of the loneliest times in human history. And I don't think I look forward to a world where all human interaction is on Zoom and only digital. I think you need that connection. You need that connection to be nourishing to your soul, to your spirit. And so, you know, I'm looking forward to a future world that I hope has the best of the old world and the new world. Where I can still, you know, have real human connection in the real world, but not go in the office five days a week. Because I do also think that um, there's a lot of inefficiencies to the way the world was.
1: Yeah, that's something that hasn't been that talked about. For people who live alone, I'm sure this has been totally different than for people who have lived with other people. It sounds like you guys are, by the way, going back to like some type of hybrid model probably in the future.
0: Yeah. I, yeah. I, I don't, you know, we're still going to kind of sorting it out. Like the word hybrid, I haven't really liked because I kind of thought hybrid is like what you do when you're not really sure what you're going to do. So you're saying, Oh, like let's split the difference. Let's say, come back three days a week. And I don't know why you would go back three days a week, like compared to five or one or two, like it feels like there's a risk of that being arbitrary. So we're still designing it, but I think the way it's practically going to work for a lot of companies is you're going to want to be together for a period of days or weeks at a time. And then you don't want to give flexibility for days or weeks at a time. So I, I don't know if it's going to be three days a week. It might be that, you know, we just come back this week or this a week, a month or these. we're kind of sorting it out. But I want to be really thoughtful about, like, if it's three days a week, why is it three days and not two or, you know, and does it really afford more flexibility? I think the promise of this new world is actually really exciting if we get it right. But If you get it wrong, it can be not so great. But if we get it right, think about what's possible. Suddenly, you can hire people all over the world. People can theoretically live anywhere in the world they want to live and still work for a company as long as they can be on an appropriate time zone. And you can have flexibility. If you've ever wanted to go away and work somewhere for a summer, you can now do that. And I think it has to be balanced this idea That we don't want to live in a world that's totally fragmented, where people are only on Zoom. Because that's also a pretty lonely, isolating world. So we're going to have to still find moments to come together. But I don't think we just come together to sit in random meetings or come together to sit at a desk by ourselves. Why would you do that unless you really need space? So if we're going to come together, it should be really meaningful things that you can't do on Zoom. And so I think that's where the future of work goes in. Like, you know, it's about if we're going to gather, we're going to do things we couldn't do in Zoom. And I think there's a lot of downsides to Zoom. Like you don't bump into people in the hallway. There's not as many spontaneous conversations, but also everyone's bubble gets smaller. So like my executive team, I'm closer to than I've ever was in the office. I talk to them all the time. But, you know, a lot of everyday employees I don't see anymore. And so unless I schedule a meeting, there's no spontaneous interaction. So I do think, you know, this hybrid is going to have to be the best of both worlds, not like splitting the difference of both worlds, which is where I think some of the solutions are netting out. And I don't think we want to go down that road.
1: It sounds like a thoughtful and reasoned approach to this. Let's get into your company's business for a minute, because the name, as it suggests, was founded around travel, Airbnb, and COVID has totally disrupted travel. Certainly, many people have become hesitant to open their doors to strangers. And can you tell me what the pandemic has looked like? What kind of data and what sort of trends you saw unfolding?
0: Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, we got an early warning sign because we have a business in China. And so, kind of late January, before this was a news story in the United States, we saw in late January and probably through Valentine's Day, our business in China dropped precipitously, like 80, 90%. It was something unlike anything we'd ever seen. You know, when your business drops like 5 or 10%, it's kind of like a warning sign. I, I, I didn't even know a business could drop 80% in a month, I, w- I didn't even know that was possible. And I remember saying famous last words and meaning, wow, if this thing spread beyond China, it would be really bad. I, I kind of said it quite naively, not realizing how fateful those last words would be. And then, of course, it kind of spread west, right? So then you started seeing it the Korean business go down, the Japanese business go down. Then you start seeing Europe going down. And so by the time it had reached North America, Canada, and United States, we kind of knew what was going to happen. And we had a sense of how bad it would be. And we knew it was going to be very, very bad. But I didn't realize how bad it would become. It's just hard to wrap your head around. But what transpired was that our business dropped by 80% in eight weeks. And to give you a sense, that's like driving a Eighteen-wheel truck, eighty miles an hour, and then hitting the brakes. In other words, nothing good happens when you when something drops that quickly. And it became existential. I mean, it felt like everything was breaking. We had billions of dollars of cancellations from guests. Hosts were panicking that they wouldn't earn income. Like it was really scary. Um, we had to rapidly cut costs. We were forecasting, you know, losing billions of dollars, billions of dollars. We were working on an S1. I mean, here's the thing. We were like this high-flying tech startup, thought we were, you know, doing really well, about to go public. All of a sudden, we go from preparing to go public, a capstone of more than a decade, to all of a sudden, news reports writing articles like, is this the end of Airbnb? Will Airbnb exist? And can Brian Chesky save Airbnb? Those were headlines. And only eight weeks earlier, we were right about to go. We were preparing to go public. So that's kind of chapter one. We had to make some incredibly difficult decisions, including restructure the company. We lay off nearly 2,000 people. That was by far the hardest thing I've ever had to do professionally. It was certainly harder for the people who were impacted. And we thought that was the end. We thought, okay, we've now downsized the company and we're in this for the long haul. And I said, we're, I'm like a captain of a ship. We're in the middle of a storm. And we gotta have enough rations in the boat because this storm might go on for a couple of years. So that was that was chapter one.
1: And this is like what time frame, by the way?
0: Okay, this is March, yeah. So probably call it March fifteenth, you know, kind of Ides of March was the first emergency board meeting I had. So I started seeing things go down in February. You know, that was I think you know, around the time they declared it a uh, COVID eight pandemic, the World Health Organization. And I'd say through mid-May or late May. What we started noticing though, okay, chapter two. Then we started noticing bookings for Memorial Day weekend in the United States, which I think was May 24th, May 25th of last year is one of those dates. We started seeing at the very last minute a sudden surge in bookings. We didn't know if it was an anomaly. And then suddenly June and July bookings pick up and the bookings pick up to nearly the same levels of the year before. But here's the crazy thing. This is after we cut nearly $1 billion of marketing on a run rate basis and after borders were shut down. And Airbnb is a cross border business. I mean, that's how we used to be thought, right? Most people, when they first tried Airbnb, when we first started, were people in Canada or New York, like going to Paris or vice versa. And suddenly what happened was, though urban travel and people staying and crossing borders and going to cities had stopped for the most part, people were traveling in their own country. In the U.S. and Canada, for example, people would get in cars and drive about a tank of gas, and they'd stay on a non, like a suburb or in a rural area. And in fact, nearly half our business in Canada became rural travel—people staying in rural areas and farms. Almost like over forty percent.
1: So you basically went from like a company that operated in cities to a company that.
0: Let let me let me let me tell you the shift. What happened? We went from urban to everywhere. Look, really half and half, but like very urban, heavy, heavy to literally people traveling everywhere, to like small towns and rural communities that most people never heard of, from short-term travel to short and long-term travel, more than a quarter of our nights at one point last year were longer than 30 days, which is not travel, right? Most people define travel as 30 days. So and it went from cross-border travel to domestic travel. It was a completely different situation. And one other change, it used to be that people had really specific dates in mind. They're like, I'm going to Toronto for this business meeting and I got to go on this date and I already booked a flight. Suddenly people are like, I just want to get out of the house and I'm kind of willing to go anywhere. I'm kind of willing to go any point. I just don't want it to be too far because I don't want to fly there. And that was about all they were saying. And they were also booking bigger homes because people were saying, I want to get out of the house, but I want to be alone. So I want to go with friends or family. I want to get a house with them. So suddenly we were renting bigger homes in lesser areas from people that were like kind of nearby, locals. It was a completely different business. And what this proved was something really important. And I think this led to the third chapter. It proved that our business model is adaptable, that we are living in one of the most dramatic, fast-changing periods in, in history. Certainly, this is the most disruptive period in travel since I've been alive, probably since World War II. In fact, the former CEO Marriott said that the impact of COVID was greater than the impact on Marriott than World War II, just to, just to put this stuff in perspective, approximately 10 times larger than the impact of 9-11, maybe even greater. And in a period of disruption, the most this is like Mother Nature, and the, the most adaptable species are usually the ones that survive. And we knew that we had to be adaptable. So our business model is adaptable because we have nearly every type of home in nearly every community at nearly every price point. So even if business travel shuts down, we have leisure travel. If people stop crossing borders, you can, book it, you can book a home in your own country. If people stop going to cities, they can go to rural areas. So suddenly we could accommodate nearly every type of travel. And I think that's because we don't have to pour concrete. The investment of Airbnb was made generations earlier by people building homes. We just connected them. And so suddenly this adaptability of a model plus the resiliency and adaptability of our culture led to the third chapter, the IPO, which said that, you know what? Our business actually appears stronger than it did before the pandemic because we had nearly as many bookings as the year earlier without even spending any money on marketing. And so suddenly we said, we might have a window. This might be a long shot. but We may have a window to go public. And we did the unthinkable. We went public at a travel company in the middle of a pandemic on Zoom. And only eight months earlier, people were asking if we would exist. We went public and not only had a successful IPO, but, you know, we were one of the only companies in history that hit a $100 billion valuation and with the stock had doubling the day of issuing. It was a pretty unbelievable up, down, and up story for 2020. And like one of my board members is Ken Chenault. He was the CEO of Amex and you know, he, he lived through 9-11, he lived through 2008, and he said that few companies in the last 25 years have ever gone through a year like Airbnb in 2020.
1: I mean, it is a bold and wild, crazy story you just told. And I wanna ask you about something you just said, which is that you, you don't have to pour concrete. It made me think of something In Canada, one of the big issues is this issue that it's so hard to pour concrete and build new housing and there's a housing shortage and there's many people in younger generations feel that they'll never be able to afford a home. And in some quarters, people blame Airbnb because it's obviously given many homeowners a source of income and it's given travelers a place to stay. But some people say it's exacerbated this housing crisis because it's taken some rentals off the market to serve Airbnb customers and, you know, possibly contributed to rising home prices because people can afford to pay more for their home if they know they have a unit that they can rent out selectively. Have you heard those complaints? How do you view those?
0: Let me just start by saying we don't want to be part of any housing problems. We want to be part of housing solutions. Airbnb started because my roommate and I couldn't afford to pay our own rent. That's what we started. You know, we weren't, I didn't start this company because I wanted a new way to travel. I was living with my roommate in San Francisco. We were broke. We couldn't afford to pay rent. So we decided to turn our house into a bed and breakfast, but we didn't even have bed. This is 2007. A design conference come into San Francisco, hotels were sold out. And we said, let's pull out air beds out of our closet. And we called it not a bed and breakfast, but an air bed and breakfast. We ended up hosting three guests that weekend. And the reason I tell you the story is because Airbnb was started because people like Joe and I couldn't afford our own rent. So it's so, so, I want to say that though I have great circumstances today financially, you know, only 14 years ago, I was also one of those people that couldn't afford to pay rent. And that's why we started Airbnb. And so what we wanted to do was build a platform where people could earn extra income on the most... Expensive asset that they're paying for in their life, which is their own home. And what we hear is a large percent of people actually depend on the income they earn on Airbnb to pay their rent or mortgage. In fact, the top three professions of Airbnb hosts are healthcare workers, school teachers, and actually students. These are not people in the highest income bracket. And 55% of our hosts are women. And so economic opportunity is being spread to a lot of people. Now, that being said, there are people who have been taking housing off the market in different cities on Airbnb. And we've been very sympathetic to cities' complaints about that. So what we've tried to do is work city by city, because some cities are OK with people renting second homes and some people aren't. So we have agreements with more than one thousand cities. Many of the agreements involve Airbnb collecting remitting hotel tax. We're one of the largest collector's remitters of hotel tax in the world. We've collected three billion dollars in counting of hotel tax. I believe by last count, but we also make sure our hosts comply with registration systems. Some registration systems limit them to register their homes. They can only list for X number of nights a year. There's a variety of things we do. But I say all this to say we are absolutely sympathetic to these concerns. We want to be part of the solution, not the problem. And we're going to continue to be good partners of cities because ultimately I want cities to become more affordable. I want Airbnb to be the way for you to be able to afford to stay in your home, not to push people out of your home.
1: Right. Yeah. Like Toronto, where I'm recording this from, is one of the cities. I don't know if you call it a backlash, but they have passed new rules that you have to register. But I mean, to point of your points, though, about how it started, it, it started as people were renting out a room, like a bed and breakfast, like you were saying, but some hosts have evolved to a more professionalized level where they're basically property managers for Airbnb units. And it sounds like it's not exactly what you had planned, but it's up to cities to regulate, basically, it sounds like.
0: It's not, as a generalization, a bad thing. It's sometimes great, and it's sometimes not great. It really depends on the circumstances. If a city's got a housing crunch, then that's not a good circumstance. If a city is desperate for tourism and it's got a surplus of homes, then it's not per se a bad thing. We're in 100,000 communities. So it really depends city by city. But I just want to recap a couple things. 90% of our hosts are individuals, not property managers. The vast majority of them, 3.6 million, about over 4 million hosts, Are everyday people. So I think there's this kind of perception maybe that exists that more of our inventory is professionally managed than is actually the case. And we put our numbers in our S1. We had to put out public disclosures um, when we went public. And so we put out quite a lot of data about the nature of our host community. But, you know, you put out, you build a huge internet platform, people use it in ways that you don't intend. And one of the challenges that a lot of internet companies have is that there are a lot of unintended consequences. When you build something and hundreds of millions of people use it, even if it's mostly a good thing, there's always unintended consequences. And it's not about conceiving an idea, getting hundreds of millions of people using it and nothing ever going wrong. I think it's about being fast, being proactive, taking responsibility and acknowledging if there are mistakes that you're not gonna get dragged into the future, that you're gonna be a good actor and you're gonna lead the way and try to fix things. And that's what we tried to do, sometimes better than others. I wish I was you know, a period of time faster in certain markets to work. We, we were working the fastest we can Starting a company, it's a little like jumping off a cliff and assembling the airplane on the way down. You know, it is quite a scramble to be able to do all this.
1: This sounds a little like Mark Zuckerberg's move fast and break things.
0: No, I don't think we ever have that approach. Um, That's not been our methodology. You know, I I think our methodology has always been to try to be partners of cities. You know, in 2011, you know, I hired our first executive, Belinda, and uh, Johnson, she became our COO, and now she's on our board. And I used to think when people don't like you, you avoid them. And she said, No, if people have concerns about you, you should meet them. You should look them eye to eye. It's hard for people to misunderstand people up close. And so what we started doing is meeting with representatives in thousands of cities. And that's how we ended up, you know, with over a thousand agreements with jurisdictions all over the world. You know, most most internet companies have scrutiny when they're large. We had scrutiny before we were large. So we've been, you know, under the public eye for the last 10 years. And I ultimately think there's a new approach for Silicon Valley companies that we're all have to get on board with, which is acknowledging that we only exist if society gives us permission to exist. And so, you know, we we, that that's how that's the game. And we need that permission. We need everyone to give us permission to exist. And so you know, it doesn't mean that I'm going to agree with every single point of view in every single market. Again, we're in hundred thousand communities, but it does mean that our general principle is to be good partners with cities, to strengthen the communities we're in. If we're doing something that is like people concerned, we will hear them out, we will make adjustments. And you go city by city trying to do your very, very best. I think that's the most important thing we can do. And I think the most important thing is just, again, acknowledging our own responsibility. We have a lot of responsibility and trying to design with that in mind. So this is what we're trying to do. The one other thing I'll just say is that more of our business is not even travel. I just, I'll get back to where I started. Increasingly, people are not just traveling on Airbnb. They're now living on Airbnb. So I think a lot of people also associate Airbnb with a way to rent a home for just a few days. Well, that's how it started. But now a lot of people are working remotely. A world where you're on Zoom, like this interview, is a world where many people can work anywhere and they're choosing to work in Airbnb homes and they're living literally months at a time. And I can tell you that I didn't foresee this when we started Airbnb. I know cities didn't foresee people living this way either. But this is how it's going to be probably in the future. The lines between traveling and living are blurring. And I think this is probably that single idea that traveling, living, blurring is probably one of the most profound shifts in travel since the invention of the internet, certainly. Maybe even going back further, the invention of the car and airplane. I mean, it suddenly changed the entire identity of travel. Because I think people used to assume travel was what you did when you went somewhere for a few nights or a week. And then suddenly there's an entire generation, millions of people that have a lot more flexibility.
1: I noticed you guys have put these like flexible dates where like you could say, I want to leave between this day and that day. And I want to go somewhere in this area, sort of rural. And you guys have algorithms that will help sort people's travel wishes. Technology is founded on algorithms these days. They're essential. And yet they're also come under criticism sometimes. I mean, what's it like trying to sort of get this right and knowing that you're going to make mistakes?
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so kind of a lot of topics there. Let me just kind of try to work through them. Let me just start first, the feature you've been referring to. Because before the pandemic, how most people search for travel is they said, I'm going to Toronto and I'm going you know, September 10th to September 15th. And what they, you would do is they book their flight, then they come to Airbnb. Now they come to Airbnb first and they don't even know where they want to go. And so what they're saying is they're flexible. So we built a feature and the feature is literally called I Am Flexible. And you can have flexible dates. You can say, I'm looking to stay for a night, a weekend, a week, or a month, anytime in the next X amount of months. That feature alone has been used more than 500 million times since we launched it in the beginning of the year, 500 million times. For a company that does travel to have any feature used half a billion times, is a pretty, pretty mind-boggling, it's probably a good word to describe that scale. It's hard to wrap your head around how big that number is. So that's the first thing. It's saying that travel has... Statistically speaking, completely changed. I don't think this is ever going back. Like maybe this is somewhat temporary. Uh, the world's never going back to the way it was, and that means travel is never quite going back to the way it was. But I think you asked something much more broadly, and maybe maybe the way to answer it is: What is it like to have the responsibility of being the leader of a technology platform that's used by hundreds of millions of people? And you know, you can't when you're when you have a platform of hundreds of millions of people, you do need algorithms. Because otherwise, you have to make manual decisions hundreds of millions of times. You would need millions of employees to make hundreds of millions of decisions. That would not be feasible. And so algorithms, of course, become important. But I also think, and I think that most people in Silicon Valley agree with me, that algorithms have their limits and that you cannot manage your company through algorithms. Because the problem with algorithms is they're kind of like approximations. And algorithms don't have a mind of their own. They're just logic. And I don't think people want to be treated just as a number, right? And so the risk of just running your company algorithms is that everyone just becomes a number, a cohort, a data set, an experiment, an A-B test. You know, we don't want to think of people like that. And so there are absolutely limits to what the algorithms do. We try to really look as personally as possible on individual basis. We look at like, we have millions of people that call customer service every year. We try to make sure that all that feedback from those phone calls get into the the team members, the product development people that are building the product. We try to do really extensive surveys. We try to use the products ourselves, dog food the product. How do we feel? And we don't just look at the business impact. We also ask, how would somebody feel to use this product? Because one of the things the audience might not know is I don't have a typical business background. I went to design school. I might be one of the only people running a company this large that went to an art and design school. And so my background is not a business person. My background is art and design. And, you know, what I learned about was the most important thing was how someone felt when they used your product. And so we focus a lot on that as well. And another way of saying it is I try to balance both sides of of our brains, like the right side and the left side, the creative side, the analytical side. Why would you run a company with only half your brain? Why wouldn't you use every part of you? And so we try to balance a little bit of art and science. And I think there's nothing wrong with algorithms. There's nothing wrong with science, obviously. Science is critical. The scientific method is really important. But when a company does not allow room for the creative process, then they get lopsided. So we think companies should be a balance between art and science, between that scientific method and the creative process. Technology is not the problem. It's just how you use technology. And so what are the intentions of the people with the technology in the hands of? That's the question.
1: It sounds like a really thoughtful approach. Maybe just the last question I'll ask you is across Canada, we're seeing COVID rates spike again and vaccination rates decline. And all the data points suggest that we're going to see a fourth wave soon and quite possibly another period of restricted travel when do you see things returning to normal? Or maybe a better way to ask that is, what is the new normal?
0: Yeah, I don't think, if by normal, we mean the world that we remember, I don't think they ever return. I don't think we ever go back to the world that we remember. I think I think that world is over. Just like we're never going back to 1950, we're never going back to 1900, we're never going back to 2019. I think that world's over and we're never going back. But that doesn't mean that everything about 2019 we'll never experience again. And I don't think, per se, that's entirely a bad thing. I think the world is never going back to the way it was. I think travel is never going back to the way it was. Now, I feel very confident in that prediction. Now, if you ask the fall, what will it look like? Now, I'm trying to, you know, play Nostradamus. It's a little hard for me to tell you exactly what the future looks like. But there are some things that we do think are true. And I'll tell you what I think I can count on in the context of saying anyone that tried to predict the future in the last year and a half was humble because many of us got a lot of predictions wrong. I think that being said, I think we can say that business travel is permanently changed. It's not over. Business travel will come back, but it's not going to look anything like it did because now people are realizing they can work remotely on Zoom. So a lot of people are gonna realize they can do a meeting over Zoom. A whole bunch of CFOs realize they can save a lot of expenses on travel and entertainment. A lot of employees realize they don't need to travel to have a meeting, they can do it on Zoom. And even if you were to try to travel to an office to have a meeting with somebody, maybe a lot of those employees aren't even at the office anymore. They're working remotely. So I think business travel is not coming back the way it was there might be a new type of business travel where people working remotely want to come back to the headquarters every few months. And so they're going to want to live and stay longer and be in groups of people. I think that you know, people will travel in cities, but the genie's out of the bottle. And what I mean by that is people now realize there are alternatives to going to Paris. There are alternatives to going to New York City. People will still go back to New York and Paris, but now they're realizing, you know what, it's also fun to go to a national park. It's also fun to stay in a rural area with my friends. So there are alternatives. And so what this is going to lead to is travel redistribution. Travel is going to redistribute and spread out to more locations. And I think this is permanent. We're never, ever going back to an over-concentration of people being in a few areas, which I think is a good thing. And I think even cities like Paris might tell you that's a good thing because I think mass tourism was a big problem. Too many people. I wouldn't say there's over-tourism in the world in the sense that too many humans are traveling. I think the problem is you need people going to too few places on the same date. That's the problem and maybe traveling too far. And so those are the real problem. There's a more sensible way that we can travel. And I think that COVID is probably enforcing that more sensible way. I think the third change that's irreversible is I think length of stay is permanently longer. You know, I think a lot of people have realized the most expensive part of travel is flying. That a cheaper way to travel is if you're going to travel... Just stay somewhere longer. Your money can go further. And maybe don't get on a plane. Maybe save that money, drive somewhere, and stay longer. People will get back in, on planes, but I do think you're going to see a world of more flexibility, meaning a world where people stay and travel longer. And the longer you're away from home, the more you want to be in a home. And that's why our business is benefiting because people are like, I want to go somewhere for a week or a month. And if they're going to be gone that long, they want to be in a home. I think the next thing you're going to see down the road is once borders reopen, you might have people realizing with more flexibility they wanna go away for the summer and maybe they wanna go away to another country because as long as you're on the right time zone or you're willing to live on a certain time zone, your office may afford you over summer more flexibility. And I, I know this is maybe more privileged office workers. I know this is not everyone's experience, but this will still be literally hundreds of millions of people. So anything that involves hundreds of millions of people must be discussed as a meaningful trend. So those are, I think, some of the changes that we probably can count on. And I think if we get this right, I think the future could be really bright because we could live in a world that's more efficient, with more people having more opportunities, and there could be a lot more freedom, a lot more flexibility where you can travel the world with your friends, your family, and have freedom. That being said, let's not be naive. Technology always provides opportunities and risk, And the risk is that people could get left behind. The risk is that this could be actually even lonelier if we're not careful, that we're all just living in isolated lives. And so I think that it's really, really important that we're thoughtful and we design the future we want to live in. We don't just allow technology momentum to drive our destiny. You know, this is probably also one of the loneliest times in human history. And so I hope we use technology to bring people together and make us all feel closer, not further apart, which is, I think, sometimes what technology sometimes maybe does to us um, and we got to be very careful with that.
1: It's going to be really interesting to see how it all plays out, but I I just want to thank you so much for coming on the show.
0: Of course. Thank you very much for having me.
1: That was Brian Chesky, co-founder and CEO of Airbnb. That's this week's episode of Down to Business. Thank you for listening and for sharing this or another episode with a friend if you choose to or for rating us on your podcast app to show support. As always, this was a team effort, and Bryce Hall produced the show and composed the music, Yadula Hussein edited, and Pamela Heaven provided web support. I'm Gabe Friedman, and I'll be back next week. But until then, you can find all your business news at financialpost.com, or in any of our five weekly newsletters delivered straight to your inbox, covering the workplace, the economy, energy, finance, and investing.